0: this is the writer's voice new fiction from the new yorker i'm deborah treisman fiction editor at the new yorker on this episode of the writer's voice we'll hear karen mahajan read his story the true margaret from the august 14, 2023 issue of the magazine mahajan is the author of two novels Family Planning and the Association of Small Bombs which won the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award in 2017 Now here's Karan Mahajan
1: The True Margaret Mira was recalling the tragedy of her first marriage married off to an Indian doctor in 1959 she had moved to London only to discover that her new husband Ravi already had a wife in the city. Ravi didn't wait long to tell her. It was the night that Mira and he arrived in London, haggard from their two-day honeymoon in Jaipur, where an over-enthusiastic bearer woke them every morning at six with bed tea. Then, on a connecting flight from Cairo, they had dozed, their heads forming a tent against the propeller roar. And now, in Earl's court, the street below empty, save for murmuring students and a chestnut cellar with a scratchy voice, They stayed awake into the night. Ravi showed her around the sparse, drafty top-floor flat and plugged in the three-bar fire. Then he began speaking to her in a business-like way, a tone she'd never detected before in his arsenal of charm. I suppose, dear, we might as well discuss the issue at hand, he said. Casually, he brought up the fact that he was already married to a woman in England, Margaret, a nurse. I can only be half a husband, he declared. I owe a responsibility to this woman. You see, when I was lonely and sad in this new country, she was of great assistance to me. And I am like a father to her two children. No, let me finish. You see, there was no circumstance in which I could inform my family in Amritsar about her. People there don't understand these distances, the new world you and I inhabit. Ravi was a tall man with aristocratically weather-beaten skin. He stooped more and more as he spoke, clutching the daggers of hair at the back of his neck, one eye twitching a little, the whites embroidered with rivulets of red, even as his voice remained deliberate. You must realize, Mira, it was a very difficult circumstance for me. When a man is cast away from home, he needs an anchor to keep his ship in port. Mira stood on her toes, swaddled in several hand-knit pullovers, She reached up and touched his face. Ravi looked as if he were going to sneeze, but then relaxed. He grew sleepy like a boy. Drowsily in bed, he kept speaking, and she shushed him and stroked his hair. In the morning, he woke full of energy and said, I won't see her. I don't know why I told you. It's long over. It was a marriage of convenience. You know Count Leo Tolstoy? On the night he and his wife were married, he told her everything about his past everything. But what about the children, Mira wondered. Then she extinguished the thought. Three days passed. Nothing more was said of this subject. And because it had been spoken of so late in the night, it acquired the quality of a memory from transit, experienced nowhere. Ravi once again became the gallant man who had patiently showed her how to make love on their wedding night while relatives giggled outside and parroted raucous sex noises. He laughed heartily now at her Indianisms, and on Sunday took her by the hand into the streets to name the flowers growing in boxes on the window sills, damp and fresh and pouring downward, their tendrils caught in the teeth of the sooty brick. Then, one windy and dry day, the pavements heaving up dead leaves and blowing grit into the eyes, Ravi came home from the hospital where he worked, looking tense and withdrawn. Would you like a shoulder massage, maikya she asked. She had been hoping good behavior could make the nightmarish conversation evaporate. You judge me, don't you, he snapped. You think I'm a coward. Why couldn't I simply tell them, isn't it? Well, you don't know my family. My father is a very traditional person. If your dear papa had taken the time to investigate, if he didn't have 10 other children to marry off, he would have seen it instantly. Don't say anything about papa she growled. She loved her father, was proud of his role in the freedom struggle, the fact that he had retired as a cabinet minister without portfolio in Nehru's first interim government. Ravi hadn't even heard her. "'My father brought a great deal of pressure to bear on me to get married,' he said. "'My mother, frail in the best of times, perversely worried about his health and made it seem he might have died if I didn't go ahead with the proposal. So, you see, one's hands were tied,' And then I met you and I thought, ah, this is a modern woman, educated, well-spoken, from a great family she is likely to understand. Don't cry. She cried some more. She was thinking about how disappointed her father would be. He had gently warned her against marrying a man who lived abroad, but she had been adamant. She was a great lover of her family, of her boisterous brothers. No one had expected her to leave India." But the converse of this love of family was a need to discover herself. Ravi started skulking around the flat, his black shoes gleaming brilliantly. He wore a scuffed pair at the hospital, he told her, and changed out of them when he left. I knew it, he said. No one understands. That night, he drove off in his Morris to his other family. It was Mira's first night in England alone. Ravi had left the three-bar fire going in the kitchen and a pile of shillings on the table for the meter. Otherwise, she would have frozen. She lit a candle and by the familiar wavering light at the waxy kitchen table, wrote a letter home. The letterhead said, the London Hospital. She composed the letter in her cramped but polite slanting cursive. The letter was as deliberate in its form as Ravi was in his tone of voice. "'I believe I have had a relapse of my bronchial infection in Jaipur,' she wrote to her father." Ravi, being a doctor, had suggested she go home immediately and get fresh air in South India before it became too damp and cold in London. Ravi says he can purchase a ticket on the Cunard line. Better for me to make the arduous journey before I am with child, he says. It took three weeks for the letter to reach India, another month for the reply to come back. But Mira's father, traditional himself, wrote to Ravi instead of to Mira, And when Ravi returned one night to the flat, he now spent only the first half of the week with Mira. He waved the reply, written on the cheapest, lightest onion skin to save postage, at her. Bronchial infection, is it? Come here. Come here. He lowered himself onto the green, woolly, pilled reading chair. She came close. Ravi peered up at her through the circle of lamplight. His voluminous eyes, with their English rationalism, seemed to press into all parts of her like they were the cold ovals of a stethoscope. His eyelids were ash-gray. His dense eyebrow hairs were quilled upward. Any phlegm? Cough for me. Then before she could do so, he abruptly waved her away. Cowardice. You couldn't say to my bloody face you were unhappy? Mira, marveling at his hypocrisy, drew back. I... He went on. And here I was mistaking you for a modern woman. Don't you see? I'm not just living half the week elsewhere, but I'm also giving you freedom to do what you want for that time. And see it from Margie's perspective. She's agreed to share me with you out of deference to my culture, when she could have easily said no and thrown a fit as you have. But you see, these English women, they're practical, not entitled like you upper-class Indian bhenjis. A sneer distorted his face. Mira thought, he's going to kill me. This is how husband-wife murders happen. It is this kind of hate that does it. Two people alone in a place where they know no one and are free. But before Ravi left for the hospital the next morning, he kissed her on the head. Then he led her to the bedroom and they made love methodically in the sunlight as they often did on the days he was home. Mira, greedy for affection, accepted it as a mark of his dedication to her. At the end, he said, I'll write your daddy today, okay? I'll tell him everything's well, your sickness is homesickness, and that's that. He smiled and kissed her on the head again as if he were already living in that solved future. Yet, as soon as he left the flat with its rippled floors and grimy lace curtains and unpainted window shutters, a flat she occupied in fear for much of the week, too frightened even to go out and greet the milkman, she started packing her suitcase. She was crying. With each object she put in it, she understood that her life as she had known it was ending, that what she was doing now was even more irreversible than the vows of marriage. She was throwing herself across a line, the line of being a woman without a husband, a nobody, unprotected. And just as Ravi had smiled at the vision of their contented future, she wept for her future self. She knew what the future held for her. It was exactly out of a desire for a future that she had pressed for a match with this doctor living abroad. She had thought of marriage as a way to move through space at a speed India would not allow. Oh, how much she had looked forward to Viliath, Big Ben, Stratford-upon-Avon, the Tower of London, the Peacock Throne, Heather and Gorse and Marsh and Moors, the chance to leave her teeming family behind for a while. And on top of that, there was Ravi's collected, reserved British style and charm, such an antidote to her uncouth siblings. Yes, it was an arranged match, but she had felt truly seen, had felt that he was picking her for their life together because she was special, not just because she was the daughter of a famous man. And they had made each other laugh with a reference to Gandhi's obsession with bodily functions, and she had loved that boyish gap in his front teeth, had dreamed about it. But of course, it was this very charm that allowed Ravi to imagine he could maintain two wives, two selves. What he had seen in her was not her intelligence, she thought now, but her pliability. Why else would he have been reckless with someone from a famous family when he could have found a nobody who might have been grateful for even half or a quarter or a fifth of an Indian doctor? But perhaps, Mira thought, this was another aspect of his greed and charm and acquisitiveness. Perhaps he had forgotten when he saw her that he had an English wife. He was a divided person. He really was two people. And sometimes when he was home with her in their hot water flat, small as befitting a half marriage, Ravi would appreciate her cooking, would laugh and joke with her in Punjabi. He was a great mimic of distant relatives of hers, people he knew he could mock without hurting her, the voices bursting through his gray reserve. No, he wasn't two people. He was many. The acting and balancing had destroyed his center. He could be invaded by anyone or anything. The Punjabi, that of an exile, inflected with villagey phrases that made her laugh. What's so bloody funny, he would say with affectionate cocked eyebrows before launching, almost as a response, into the squawking Punjabi voice of a family friend. It was as if a switch were being thrown, the serious doting doctor and the crazed mimic. And it was the same at the midpoint of the week when, the night before heading to Margaret's, he was seized by a coldness, his body flung about by chills as he lay next to her. It was as if he were remembering Margaret and the kids and his awesome pileup of responsibilities, aspects of life he had forgotten with Mira. Perhaps this is why he married me, Mira thought, still packing, because in fact he wanted to start anew. He saw me as a chance to be young again, to continue the life he had always wanted, one that got sidetracked by this English virago. She was now very angry at Margaret. How dare she never show her face here, that bitch. She and I have more in common than most women, and she knows I am new here, whereas she has lived here her entire life, and she probably spends the days with him at the hospital. Doesn't she owe me a visit?" But Margaret remained an enigma, and it occurred now to Mira that Margaret could very well have directed Ravi into this sham marriage, that Margaret might have even explained to him the type of Indian lady who'd be most accommodating. Mira could see them having a measured conversation over flower-patterned teacups. Well, you see, darling, there's nothing to be done, is there? Margaret would have said. Quite right, Ravi would have replied, sipping the weak tea. And then Mira thought, no, no, this is wrong. These images are false. How can I be sure Margaret even knew about my marriage before Ravi returned from India handcuffed to me? And now Meera felt that she could guess why Ravi became so cold toward her during certain weeks. These must have been the weeks when Margaret was raging at him, belittling him for his cowardice, overturning the imaginary teacups in fury, asking how he could be so spineless. Didn't he live 5,000 miles from home? And given the distance and the fact that he had money, power, status, and the awesome validation of British citizenship, what could his supposedly traditional family in Amritsar have done to him? You surely can't think your grand old father would stoop to suicide now, do you, Margaret would have said. And suddenly, Mira was fully in Margaret's head, speaking her voice, feeling her curvy, white, pale body from the inside, the body sagging at the center but with blue eyes burning at the world, a woman all the way around, not boyish and wiry like Mira, a carrier of children. Yes, Mira was inside this other woman and crying and packing, and she thought, I'm losing my mind. I am doubled now, too. I now have the gift or the curse of being inside everyone, like my husband does. And it is because I can't bear to be inside my own self. I'll be anyone but me. I'll even be my enemy, Margaret, because in fact, we are one. She left the flat and somehow, using an A to Z map, walked to her Uncle Horatia's place a mile away in Wembley. But when she showed up at the iron gate of his decaying, semi-detached Victorian, dressed in a red sari and a camel hair coat, carrying a neat little suitcase with an ivory handle, she was no longer the weeping bride who had fled her sanctuary. The journey had forced her into composure. Even as Hari Shankal opened the door, she couldn't project despair or fear. And when she told him what had happened, his expression locked into place. "'You mustn't bring this to me.' "'No, no, no,' he said. "'How can I help you, Beta?' "'I myself, I was never married. "'You must sort this out between the two of you.' He was one of those doting third-cousinish father figures, a bachelor with wispy hair growing out of his ears, white and curly like pubic strands, his glasses hanging from a cord around his neck. He was shrinking with every ear. He sat at the edge of his cigar-scented sofa with its dirty white lace cover. Betty, what would your papa think?' And Mira thought, he's not heard me. Now Harish uncle began droning on about how good Indian boys got entrapped in such relationships. These mames really knew how to blackmail them. There was a reason the Britishers ruled us for so long. You think enslaving one Indian is so difficult? Our chaps, he said, they're so innocent, earnest, dutiful. And the mames can never find men like that in their own country." Moreover, these chaps are emotional and not buttoned up. No, these memes throw themselves at our boys. What chance do the poor chaps even have? And your papa, think of what he'll say if you leave. He'll scold me. He'll say, you bloody fellow. You're supposed to be her guardian and you allowed her to just run away. The disadvantage of being the child of a famous man, all of her papa G's henchmen feared him. Topmost in their minds was the desire to please him. This man, Mira thought, has a false idea of my father in his head. My father is more liberal and loving than twenty fathers combined. Doesn't everyone say the Kokreja girls are like boys, tough and individualistic and educated? And didn't he agree to send me 5,000 miles away? She became angry on behalf of her father. How dare you speak for him, she wanted to shout. I am his daughter, not you. And now she was angry, not just at this soggy, hairy specimen, but at all men. Go to hell, all of you, she thought. But a layer of tiredness slipped over her again, and she started to cry. Harish was off the sofa, coming toward her with his awkward hands and hunched back, saying, Betty, what will crying solve? She thought, he hates all of us, hates our tears. This is why he's a bachelor. And suddenly she was lit up with warmth towards Ravi. Toward his neat way of expressing himself, of taking his tie off every evening and folding it just so and placing it on the dressing table, his hands open at his sides as he talked about his day at the hospital. She was in love with Ravi. I'm going mad, she thought. She wiped her tears and said, thank you, uncle. I understand, he said. It's hard to be in a new place. It takes time to adjust, he went on. It's a big shock how free people are here. Do you mind if I light a cigarette? And you can imagine when I came here, it was a different time. I mean, these chaps were still our rulers. But of course, they treat you differently once you're here, especially in London. They're very liberal and courteous and curious. They want to know all about you. But it's all very well to treat a few of us well when you're enslaving a nation, isn't it? But we're independent now, Mira said. Quite right, quite right, he said, puffing on his cigar. Mira returned to her flat and made Ravi a nice meal. She lasted a year. But when she thought later of what one year meant against an entire life, it was nothing. She had almost accepted half a life as her life. Every day with Ravi was new, every day was unpredictable. And yet every day when it reached its conclusion could be recalled only as an accumulation of signs. Grayness, clouds, rain, milkman, flower seller, green grocer, baker, the tramp at the bus stop who yelled about the deaths of the Somme. India had been the opposite, a daily external extreme churning, a chaos of relatives and servants, but a place, too, of inner peace, a kind of boredom and security, the kind that had made her eager for an adventure with a man living abroad. Mira missed home. She put her head against the cross-hatched window pane, absorbing the cold through her temple. One warm morning, when she opened the tiny window in the bedroom, it simply fell out, along with its wooden frame, into the dirty alley between the backs of the houses. She read in the papers about Sophia Loren's husband, accused of bigamy, but could not connect the story with her own condition, did not feel that English laws applied to her. Nor had she been able to bring herself to investigate Margaret. This was because all white women of a certain age in London were Margaret. Suspicion made her peer at each one of them, noticing their teeth, noses, lips, their low-cut blouses, their fashionably belt-cinched waists. How could she compete with them? At home, she sometimes touched herself while imagining Ravi with one of them, only to pull her hand away. She didn't want the revelation of the true Margaret to take away a city full of her playthings. These thoughts came and went in flashes. She told herself that her perversions were brought on by loneliness, the desire for friendship, the kind of bond she had formed with only one person in London, the landlady's daughter, Abby, who, like Mira, had been a competitive badminton player in school. And how alike we really are, Abby had said, pressing Mira's hands as they chatted by the staircase. Abby seemed to know about Ravi's other wife because she never mentioned his prolonged absences. This knowledge sat heavily between them, preventing them from progressing further. They were always stuck on the ground floor of friendship, expressing admiration for each other's existence without making the slightest attempt to penetrate to the truth, their friendship little more than a series of chirps of affirmation. The flat was not without clues about where Margaret might live. Receipts, faded prescriptions for the kids, two boys she had learned. But every time Mira took the tube and got within a few blocks of Margaret's possible address in Islington, she turned around. In this way, Margaret helped her discover the city, develop confidence, learn to be alone. "When you came, you were like a mouse," Ravi was saying. "a small, freezing mouse. "Do you want to go to the theater?" she nodded. In the dark of the matinee, he held her hand. She let it lie limp but did not pull it away. At home, he was distracted. He took off his tie. Then, for the first time in months, he bent down and passionately kissed her. She resisted, but then her mouth sagged open, and they lay in the bed together, close to the repaired window with its fresh, harsh eye on the back alley. I want us to have a child, he whispered into her neck, his hooked nose nestled there. She was silent. Hello, Ravi said. Anyone home? I don't want to, Mira finally said, her eyes scanning the pressed tin ceiling. But why, darling? I don't want to bring more sadness into the world. Ravi got up on his elbows. Mira, it's not what you think it is. Margaret's a good person. She was widowed and I used to comfort her. Then love developed. He paused. The love has been dead for years. When I met you, I was trying to escape her. But how can I? I'm incapable of leaving anyone or anything, of moving on. You left India behind, she almost said. But what was the point? It's the children. That's why I've stayed, he stroked her sides. That's why I want us to have one of our own, half of you, half of me. Think of how sweet he'll be, how much we'll adore him. It's a different kind of love one has for kids, he kissed her deeply. I don't want to, she said again, covering her eyes with an arm. Night after night now, the building would come alive with the sound of Ravi's trotting footsteps approaching the fourth floor. Then the good doctor, placing his black valise on the carpet, would crouch down beside his intransigent wife, usually knitting in a chair, and say to her, will the Duchess of York consent to make love to her humble servant tonight? No. No. May I serve the queen of Sheba, the crepe Suzette I brought home especially from Viraswami? Give it to your other wife. But to her surprise, he was starting to make her laugh again. Northern summer light swamped the flat in the evenings. He was spending more and more time with her, a man who likes a project, she thought. He brought home a suitcase of clothes. She anticipated his arrival with dread. She had carefully calibrated a routine, cooking, shopping, walking, playing cards, and badminton with Abby, and now it was crumbling. Nevertheless, she could feel her resistance giving, too, and she was frightened. Then, one night, Ravi was crouching on the floor next to her and stroking her thigh as she read in the green chair when she said, "'Will you take me to meet Margaret?' How many months it had taken her to ask this question? Ravi startled." He was still in his grey work suit, his brown hat lay on the carpet. Of course, that can be arranged, he said. Of course, that can, yes. He seemed to be speaking to himself. I propose we meet halfway between India House and the House of Commoners, Mira said, purposely misstating the latter. It's a joke to you, Ravi asked. Her mouth tightened. You have to understand, Mira. once I open that door, that's the issue, Ravi was saying. For three days, she didn't hear from him and was in suspense. She mopped the floors, dusted the fronts of the cabinets, beat the sofa with her palm. The door groaned. It was Ravi. He stood in the frame, hunched and wary, his black doctor's bag under one arm. She is amenable to it. She says you can come to to her place, but not to expect any grand cooking. He seemed older, broken a man caught between two lives, two wives. And what she felt for him, even as she said, very good, was not pity but contempt. Am I, too, just a creature of power, she thought with a horrified smile. The next morning, Ravi was unwell. He had evidently caught a bad cold and began coughing into the kitchen sink. Not there, Meera found herself shouting. I just cleaned all those dishes. He glanced sideways at her from over the cracked, spidered sink, eyes bulging as he coughed some more. Just do it on the side. I'm sick, Mira. Move. She felt again that unbearable contempt for him. How would she let this man waste her life? For the next two days they fought. He called her fat and uptight. She taunted him for not having got her pregnant the first months they'd made love in England. Is that why you brought me here? Because you couldn't get your English screw pregnant? Listen to the words coming out of your mouth, he said. She did, and she was dismayed. Suddenly, she was on the landing. She had run out of the flat, slamming the door behind her. As she came down the stairs, the door to Abby's flat opened. "'It's not all right, what's happening with you,' Abby whispered. "'I'll help you.'" A week later, the day before she was to meet Margaret, Mira flew to Delhi, smuggled out in the night by Abby. She had sold her gold wedding bangles to purchase the ticket. In Delhi, her father, broad-shouldered and upright in his tight study, was shocked to see her. But when Meera started crying and told him the whole story, he said, Oh, my Bitya, this is my mistake. You've run all this way. No, Papaji, it's my fault, Meera said, crying. I should have known. How had her life come to this? How could you have known, Bitya? he said. And then, you know, when my first wife passed... I was only 20, and I didn't want to remarry. I didn't think life could start again, and I was angry that my father had pressurized me. But then I went ahead. And look at things now. I have you and all of my children. So at your age, there's no reason to be despairing. Men always take the occasion of a woman's sadness to launch into reveries. She didn't mind. She got so little time alone with him. It was only tragedy that had brought them closer. She was for a second almost grateful for it. She had lost her husband but gained a father. After a discreet back and forth with Ravi's family in Amritsar, the marriage was annulled under the pretext that it hadn't been consummated. A few months later, she was married off again to an older, widowed, mid-level railway official with a weak heart. She had no idea how much diligence was done. It was understood that she had to go back into the world, even if it was his damaged goods. And so the shambles of London gave way to the shambles of India a more lower-middle-class existence than she'd ever imagined, a union with a man she had nothing in common with and who, strangely, had no interest in her famous family and instead asked her questions about England as if she had been there for her studies rather than for a wreck of a marriage. Was that really me in England, she sometimes wondered, remembering the first night Ravi had spoken to her about Margaret and how that conversation itself had seemed like a dream. A dream upon a dream upon a dream, her life. There was, however, one sobering, bracing dose of reality, Ravi. Ravi never vanished. Ravi kept writing to her for years. He said he loved her deeply. In the letters, he was apologetic and morose. He wanted her to see his position, asked how she was, how her son Anand was growing, and so on. He wanted Meera to forgive him from afar. He wanted India to forgive him for marrying a British woman. She never replied.
0: That was Karan Mahajan reading his story, The True Margaret. This is his first fiction in The New Yorker. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, David Means reads FaceTime by Laurie Moore. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for the New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.